0: and welcome to episode 200 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter or X or whatever it's called, Instagram or Facebook, and this is indeed episode 200, so quite a landmark, and I'm very pleased to have made it this far. We've got nothing particularly special planned for this double centenary episode. It's been quite a busy time for me, so I couldn't really plan anything extraordinary, but I do think this one is a very good episode anyway, because in it we hear from Anthony Gadbigio. He is an adjunct professor at George Washington University's Sustainable urban planning graduate program but for our purposes he's the author of an interesting biography of his grandfather called a safari turkish patriot gad franco in the turmoil of the ottoman empire and the turkish republic due to be published soon by hamilton books Gad Franco lived a rollercoaster life spanning the late Ottoman and early Republican eras, witnessing seismic changes politically, socially and in his personal fortunes. Born in 1881 into a Sephardic Jewish family in Milas, in what is today southwest Turkey, he went on to become a prominent journalist, social activist and lawyer in Izmir, Paris and Istanbul. As the title of the book suggests, for decades he advocated the Jewish community's integration, even assimilation, into Ottoman and later Turkish society, becoming a member of the Committee of Union and Progress at the time of the Young Turk Revolution, and advising the Turkish delegation during peace negotiations in Lausanne in 1923. However, as the years went on, his hopes became increasingly forlorn due to the hardline policies implemented particularly in the late 1920s and 30s, culminating for him in the devastating wealth tax of 1942, which left him an impoverished, disillusioned man. We talk about the trajectory of Franco's fascinating life in our conversation, but before we get started, let me make a special double centenary appeal for support. This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit, and piece together, and it has done for the last 200 episodes, and I do need listener support, your support, to be able to keep doing it. Since we launched the podcast 200 episodes ago back in 2015, we've given a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature, and the arts. It's extremely rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks. And I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do. It also gets you some pretty good extras those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders or ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 Euros or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome, but so long as you pledge $3, €3 Euros or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation-proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Anthony Gadbigio. I started by asking him what he knew of Gad Franco's life and background when he was growing up and what triggered him to dig deeper.
1: I grew up in Rome, Italy, in the 50s, and I never met my grandfather, Gad Franco. I always heard about him and there was an aura of regret and uh, an admiration for him that was coming through. You know, family members, of course, my my mother, first of all. It's only later that I found out much more about him. And what triggered my interest was, of course, in growing up and becoming a young man and then an adult, uh, trying to understand where I was from. And that was a complex question that I was asking myself. I had a few run-ins, one with a Turkish consul in Rome, when I tried to renounce my Turkish nationality, and I was told that the Turkish state was happy to get rid of non-Muslim citizens, which was a bit of a shock and also helpful, though, in trying to dig deeper. And it was it happened really in fits and starts, including a visit to his hometown, which I did in my late 20s, where people still remembered his name, which was a great surprise to me. And then much, much later on, I bumped into Rifat Bali, who's Turkey's most uh, respected historian of Jewish community. Who was doing his own research about God? And that really got me going, as it were. This is about 10 years ago. Rifat's book came out. uh, I had it translated to find out really more about Gad. And that was really the starting point. Then I I did realize that if I were to write for an Anglophone public, a non-Turkish public, I had to put Gad's life in its context. And that really got me going with research about the history of Turkey and the history of Turkish Jews. So that's how it
0: came about. So Gad was born in in Milas in what is now southwest Turkey in 1881. Then he was educated in Rhodes, the island, the Greek island today. He then moved to Izmir in 1902. And there he became a journalist. And really, that was where the the, the interest in his life begins, I suppose. He was writing about various subjects, advocating the cause of, of Jewish modernization and enlightenment values in the Ottoman Jewish community. So could you just talk about that? What was the nature of his work when he moved to Izmir? What did his work as a journalist involve?
1: So you did allude to to the term of modernization, and that, I think, was what was at stake. The Jewish community had been a very conservative one and had gone from a relatively brief period of prominence uh, in the Ottoman Empire after the Sephardi exile from Spain, and uh, eventually had declined into a kind of rather marginal community with no influence, no good jobs, no access, and very much inward-looking also because of the language it it was speaking, which was Ladino, right? And so we should say that when um, Gad started writing, he was writing in Ladino for Ladino newspapers. Ladino, as you probably know, is a language which is originally ancient Spanish, which eventually got slightly transformed with words of Turkish, words of Greek, and so on, thrown in. And so at that time, and we're talking about the very first years of the twentieth. century, Century, there was a crossroad and different tensions within the community. The traditionalists, mostly the rabbis and so on, the establishment that wanted to keep religion as the dominant identity factor of the community. And then uh, intellectuals, uh, journalists, modernizers who thought that there was a big, big, big need to renew the community, open it up. And, of course, that also happened thanks to the work of the Alliance Israélite Universelle, which was the, the French educational organization that came in and opened up schools and so on. So that was a little bit the context. And that context and those tensions were really very much reflected into what Gad was writing about in his early years in
0: his mirror. You say in the book that Gad's articles raised issues of relevance to the Jewish community, starting with the need to strike a balance between participation in Ottoman society and preserving Jewish identity. So these are eternal questions really faced by religious minority communities everywhere, and particularly the Ottoman Jewish community at this time And you write also that Gad warned about the scope of the disaster that he thought would befall Ottoman Jews if their compatriots became convinced that they're not attached to their motherland and that they're instead running after another idea like the creation of a Jewish state. So he had this anti-Zionist stance at the time and he instead advocated for Jewish assimilation and Ottomanism. This is obviously very interesting, and these are pertinent and timeless debates, really. You can even hear echoes of them in today's world. Could you just talk about Gad's stance on Zionism and what position that put him in in the community and in the wider society at the time?
1: You're absolutely right. That is a very important uh, theme that I try to have emerge through, through the book. I think that what we see in Gad's work was a real evolution. If in his early articles, say 1902, 1905, and so on, he really looks at the state of the Jewish community and what it should do to reform itself, he then quickly moves to broader societal issues of social justice and exploitation of workers and so on, and then eventually latches onto the question of what is the role of minorities in the broader Ottoman society. Now, when things really, emerged is when finally this awful Hamidian regime, this very repressive control of everything by Sultan Hamid II came to an end and a, a young Turk revolution took place there was an incredible moment of hope, not only for the Jewish community, but also for the Arabs and the Armenians and the Greeks and everybody else, that a kind of inclusive polity based on solid constitutional rules could emerge from that, right? And and Gad believed so very strongly. So he fully embraced the idea of Ottomanism and the idea that Jews should and could integrate this newly founded Ottoman society, which was getting rid of this long standing period of repression and take part in it. And and that put him at odds with the Zionists who are beginning to emerge worldwide and also were looking at the Ottoman Empire as a way to get into Palestine. And, And he very forcefully wrote against them, accusing them of misleading the Ottoman Jewish community that should instead, as you mentioned, fully embrace their national identity. And uh, somehow relegate their religious identity to a secondary order, which was what he thought was needed for everybody to peacefully
0: coexist. So, as you say there, Gad was a supporter and actually a member of the Committee of Union and Progress. And he was a believer in the Young Turk Revolution of 1908, which overthrew the regime of Abdul Hamid II. He thought that was, as you say, an opportunity to restore constitutional order and overcome the divisions that had kept the empire's communities separate and at odds with each other. So, really, he was one of these early enthusiasts for the revolution. Quickly, things would sour, however. And of course, the First World War posed really the ultimate test of his Ottomanism. And you write in the book that, quote, To Gad, as to many other Ottoman reformers and modernizers who had believed in the CUP government's policies, the future of the empire seemed now especially bleak. The hopes and dreams of Ottomanism as a benign constitutional regime, which would have offered the Jews as well as other minorities the opportunity to fully belong to a pluralistic polity, had come shockingly to an end. Multiple conflicts, mass brutality and genocide had opened a huge chasm between Christians and Muslims. The empire had lost the war and was now under foreign control. So obviously in that post-war period as well, Greek forces seized control of Izmir and the Turkish War of Independence was launched in Anatolia. And Gad moved with his family at this stage to Paris in 1920, obviously very disillusioned about how everything had gone. So how did Gad spend the war and its immediate aftermath?
1: Right. I think we are fast-forwarding to 1920, but I just want to go back, William, for a second to that moment of hope, right? After the Young Turk Revolution, there was this sense of inclusion, the sense of opportunity for all communities. They came together, also in street demonstrations, also in writings and so on, supporting this idea of Ottomanism. And one is left to wonder, uh, although I guess the temptation to do so looking at history is to be resisted. What would have happened had those wars not started so soon after the CUP government came in, right? Had the Italians not attacked Libya, had the Balkan wars not happened, so on and so forth, perhaps there would have been more time to consolidate that pluralistic constitutional government that everybody was so hopeful about instead uh, as you mentioned all those horrors did take place one after the other the CUP government became a ruthless uh, war machine and with horrible consequences across uh, the land the Armenian massacre and genocide happened during the first world war and all the other rebellions from the Armenian side from the Greek side uh, the tearing apart Actually, of the land and the fabric of the empire. So that, as I mentioned in the book, in the midst of that, really half of, of the Turkish Jewish community left, left, went abroad, went to France, went to other parts of Europe, to the States, to South America, and so on abandoning uh, the empire as it was a sinking ship right and and so did god who who lived through the greek occupation of izmir at some point had enough and picked up his family and moved to paris what was Quite extraordinary, really, is what, what happened after that, because God decided to return, which was a fairly unique thing that, that took place in his life, which ultimately put him at great odds with his wife, who vehemently wanted to stay in Paris. But he decided to go back to his homeland. So that was a, a profoundly patriotic decision he took to put his skills and expertise and uh, legal competence and so on at the service of the reborn nation, uh, right? And and that's what
0: took him back in 1922. So as you say there, he came back just as the War of Independence was really coming to an end. And he actually advised the Turkish delegation during the Lausanne peace negotiations, actually. So he was pretty prominent as a figure. And he maintained that prominence, at least in the early years of the republic. And as you say, initially, he was very optimistic. He had established a successful law practice in Istanbul. And he founded a journal, the Journal of Juridical Studies, And he passionately believed in Turkey's modernization process at this stage. You write that, quote, he truly believed that the future of the republic was promising and that it required the collaborative efforts of all educated citizens so that the rule of law would prevail despite the evidence of rising Turkish ethno-nationalism. His credentials as a Turkish patriot dated back to his Committee of Union and Progress membership and were reinforced by his anti-Zionist positions in the late Ottoman period and especially by his return to Turkey in 1922. As a respected Jewish community leader, he was often called upon to interact with the government authorities. His long-standing and well-known fluency in Turkish made him the perfect intermediary as someone who understood and supported the goals of Kemalist modernization while defending his own people. So just flesh out this early Republican period for us. You now, what? what? What was he doing in those initial years after his return?
1: Right. As you you say, he was an advisor to the government for the Lausanne Peace Conference, and that was an important milestone. We hear a little bit in the book about his writings and his thinking of the time as Turkey was trying to defend its boundaries. And specifically in his case, he was defending Turkey's rights over the Mosul province, which eventually finished in the hands of the Brits through the intervention of the League of Nations, interestingly he continued to to connect to the francophone juridical world actually continued his studies. And while he was maintaining his legal practice in Istanbul, primarily practicing corporate law, he also uh, went back to to the Sorbonne and got a doctorate in law in 1925, which gave him obviously more prestige as a jurist, added to the network of experts he could call upon to contribute to his journal that you already mentioned before, which he kept alive for 16 years, and which is a big reference in Turkey for all the jurists of the time so that's what he was really up to interestingly his dissertation was about the uh, travails of constitutional law in Turkey and it's a great read even 100 years later because you see really how he was able to trace the birth of constitutionalism how it was suffocated by Abdul Hamid and how it was reborn with the Young Turk revolution and he then in his dissertation expresses the hopes that the new republic may pursue this, this trajectory of consolidating the rule of law and so on. The reality obviously turned out to be quite different, right, as we know. While on paper, the republic was promising equality to all its citizens and the importance of laws and legislation as the basis for everything, its single-party nature made it so that the republic fairly quickly turned into an ethno-nationalistic machine, which was working to consolidate Turkish identity around its ethnic origins and implicitly, and that was one of the paradoxes, around its uh, religious identity as well. The religious identity obviously being being the Muslim one to the detriment of whoever was not Muslim, like the Jews, the Greeks, and the Armenians, but also, interestingly, and I point that out in the book quite, quite in depth, the Kurds were Muslim but weren't Turks, and were extremely rebellious uh, in the early years of the Republic, and were severely repressed. So things got got to be more and more
0: difficult to navigate for, for Turkish Jews. And you write that the Jewish elite to which Gad belonged was keen to assuage the government, assuming that full assimilation into Jewish society, no matter how painful in the short term, was the only way for the Jewish community to obtain equal rights in the long term. Prominent Jewish spokespersons reacted with everything from appeasement to even embracing the goals of the government's nationalistic campaign. So to what extent was Gad representative in his optimism in this early period before things really turned You know, was he someone who was just somewhere in the middle, who was just representative of this wish among the Jewish community to assimilate in a particular way? Or was he someone who was perhaps a bit more enthusiastic on that path?
1: I think the latter is the best definition, William. I, I do think that Gad was was very much in favor of uh, the Kemalist regime and uh, saw himself as a Kemalist throughout his life until, and we'll talk about later, things kind of fell apart on him. And and that, I think, was reflected also in you know his closeness to government circles to the point uh, at which... His legal opinions were respected. And, but uh, undoubtedly, Gat, who also became very wealthy as a corporate lawyer, providing counsel to foreign firms that were investing in Turkey during the 20s and 30s was benefiting from this uh, special position he had, which was of closeness to the government, of closeness to foreign firms, and of uh, sincere beliefs that that what was being built in in Turkey was the best possible kind of government that the country could, could expect to have. And of course, this put him in a very delicate position in as much as While he did belong to that elite of Jewish intellectuals and businessmen and so on who were close to the government and were navigating circumstances in a positive way as far as they were concerned, the majority of the Jewish community was more and more marginalized, threatened, and uh, feeling very uncomfortable through all the attacks that the the government was uh, putting out against them and, and, you know, attacks having to do with their identity with the languages they spoke, right? Ladino and French, which were abhorred by the government, which eventually forced uh, the Jewish community to close down their schools, their, their community institutions, and so on. And and we should not forget that in 1934, there was even a full blown pogrom against the Jews in, in Thrace, right? So th- the times were really hard. Now, of course, uh, Especially as Nazism started to emerge, Gad and other people like him were also looking at what was happening to Jewry in Europe and how bad things were getting. And as I also say in the book, reflecting that what was going on in, in Turkey was still more bearable and more acceptable. That was what was happening in Germany at the times and what eventually broke
0: out as a full homicidal persecution of the Jews later on. Now, as the Second World War approached, however, the mood did darken and anti-Semitism became rampant in public life through the 1930s, the later 1930s, in the press and in official policies. So battalions for hard labour were formed in the early war years and made up exclusively of minorities. And of course, the notorious wealth tax was introduced in November 1942. And that was overwhelmingly impacting minority communities. Of course, many believe, with some justification, that that wealth tax was directly targeting minorities. You write that the real intention of the wealth tax was to put minorities out of business and grab their assets in a push for turkification of the economy. And you describe Gad's position in all this. He publicly rebelled, criticised. wealth tax before and after it was introduced but he himself became one of that tax's most well-known victims and he was brutally stripped of his assets and deported to the notorious Ashkale labor camp in Erzurum in East Anatolia. So could you just talk in a bit more detail about that how the wealth tax was introduced and how it affected Gad personally and what it did to him as an individual?
1: Right. I mean, that's one of the darkest episodes of his life and obviously of the book I wrote. I believe that the wealth tax was predicated on the very dire financial conditions of the Turkish state, which was in itself a consequence of the war. Although Turkey remained neutral and had clear sympathies for Nazi Germany, although it was at the same time in contact with the allies and so on, but the public finances were ruined by a big military buildup that was carried out by the government uh, by the collapse of international trade, so on and so forth. So the, the currency collapsed. And as a response, the government decided to introduce a wealth tax, which would have obliged all sorts of individuals to contribute huge sums to the public coffers. That was the intention. And so the, the letter of the law never mentioned the real intentions, which, as you just said, really had to do with taking over the fortunes of minority members and letting Muslims, Muslim Turks, become the owners of a number of assets. So God was horrified, and, and interestingly, he was first horrified as a con- Constitutional jurists right saying this is this law is is a medieval law it's a barbaric law the republic cannot Accept something so blatantly illegal to to be put into action. And he actually even thought in the early days that it was going to be repealed, but the opposite happened, of course. And he he became well known as one of the most vocal and most most important opponents of the law, given his prestige as a jurist and so on and so forth. And. Very quickly, he was put on the list of those whose fortunes were to be taken away from them, and with, you know, that gimmick whereby these taxpayers, quote unquote, were given 15 days to fork out immense amounts that were unilaterally decreed by the government. And when they didn't, when they couldn't meet the deadline, then they were shipped off to labor camp. That's what happened to God. So I think Gad's collapse was complete at that point. And I think first and foremost, it was his deep-seated belief in the republic in the rule of law in the set of jurists who were in Ankara with whom he had corresponded and collaborated for 20 odd years all of a sudden these people turning against the Jews the Armenians and the Greeks and subjecting them to such terrible abuse so he was horrified as a jurist and then he was he became a victim of this in 42 43 I was lucky to be able to quote a number of sources that really give us a blow-by-blow blow account of how their trip to Erzurum took place, what life conditions were like in the labor camp, the fears that the prisoners had, how they were treated, and so on. It really gives us gives an insight of, of that terrible
0: moment uh, in the 40s in Turkey. And you write that he returned from the camp a different man, almost a broken man, really. You say that, quote, his collapse was complete, having been transformed from an influential, respected and wealthy member of Istanbul's professional elite to a humiliated pauper. The republic he so strongly believed in had betrayed him. The rule of law to which he had devoted all his commitment over 20 years had been blatantly violated. So this whole episode really marked a a huge shift in his life and a a horrific jolt from everything that he previously believed in. Almost everything was in ruins, essentially, at that stage.
1: That's right. And uh, ultimately, and I do have in the books, the numbers of people who were sent to labor camp, which is not an enormous number. I mean, if we compare the Ashkale labor camp with the death camps in Poland and so on during the Holocaust, etc. We're still talking about minor events, as it were. But I think they shook very profoundly the belief of the Jewish community in their opportunity to ever belong, right, to the country. And not everybody was packed off to labor camp, but the Verlik had a terrible impact, especially in a city like Istanbul, which was where most of the minority members were living by then, abuses, ill treatment, physical violence, and then these trainloads of people being, being sent off first to you know shovel the snow uh, near Erzurum and then later to break stones in another area of the country in full summer heat and so on. So these people suffered a lot. And I think primarily this episode confirmed to to the minorities that turkey was really no no place where they could live in the future and that was this very very sad moment in the history of the country i think
0: nearly half of turkey's jewish community moved to israel after 1948 and you describe in the book how gad's opinions changed and he actually made a late in life endorsement of zionism based on his experiences understanding that his dream of the jewish community fully belonging to the Turkish nation, which he'd pursued all his life, had essentially shattered. And in the book, you paint a mournful and somber picture of his last years. He actually remained in Istanbul, but his health and indeed his spirit was badly damaged by this point. And you write that he spent his last years with his memories and broken dreams, mostly in solitude. And following a decade of health, legal and financial troubles, he passed away in 1954. Could you just talk about those last somber years of Gad's life?
1: Yes, of course. I think the, really the worst, the worst thing for him was this notion that you know, all his beliefs had been shattered and that he had perhaps naively trusted the Turkish Republic and trusted the Kemalists that they could have brought, brought forth a, uh, an inclusive polity. Uh, let's not forget that he also went from being a very wealthy man, living a very comfortable life in Istanbul with all the perks related to to that kind of uh, condition, to being very poor and uh, trying desperately to make ends meet. And I think that that was also very painful to him. He was constantly reproached by his wife. Hey, for having me move from Harris uh, in 1932, and B for having been so outspoken against the Barlique, saying, you know, you you asked for it, you you called it upon yourself. So there was a very painful atmosphere at home. There were family members who left, one after the other. His beloved brother, Marcel, left and moved to the States. Both daughters, my mother and her sister, moved away abroad again. The only family member who really supported him through all those very difficult years was his son, uh, Emil, who had also been schooled as a lawyer and who came back from Palestine. And uh, after serving the Turkish army, with all sorts of indignities connected to that, he picked up... Up the legal prat- practice, which is in tatters, and little by little tried to rebuild some continuity and uh, keeping his parents alive and looking after them. And there were all sorts of painful family things going on, including sort of feud with brother Marcel, who, having gotten to the States, had, had found a way to rebuild his businesses, was actually providing help, but in the form of loans. And that was something that was pretty humiliating and creating lots of ugly tensions within the within the family. So, so I think they were very, very difficult years. There was a moment of hope again when the Democratic Party won the elections in 1950, multi-party democracy, finally came to Turkey. And there was a, a brief moment when the idea of restitutions was entertained. So God was hoping perhaps to get his property back or some of his money back but especially to be to regain his dignity and to to be restored to his previous status as a respected jurist but that did not happen and and it's an interesting combination of events There was what I call realpolitik involved under the influence of the Americans. Turkey recognized the state of Israel. That diplomatic relationship was considered to be too valuable to be threatened by bringing back to the table issues like the war leak and what that done to the Turkish community. And uh, as you mentioned already, William, I think that the arrival of multi-party democracy was not reassuring enough to the Turkish Jewish community, right? Then they felt that maybe it was better to just pick up sticks and and migrate, and and half of half of them did, which is a huge number. And God, I think, was observing all of this and reckoning with his life and his broken dreams and felt the need to write that article uh, in 1950, which he titled Mea Culpa, My Fault, and somehow uh, reconciles with the idea of Zionism and with the creation of the State of Israel as the best defender of Jewish communities worldwide. And and does so elegantly and without reneging his former thinking, which he evokes, but clearly there's a terrible sense of failure, right? And the failure is the, this denied belonging, which was which was never really authorized, never made possible for Turkey's minorities. So, yes, I think that that's how he, he ended up really a broken man who barely survived the ordeal and who eventually passed
0: away 10 years later, but in pitiful condition. That was Antony Gadbigio. Many thanks to him for joining for episode 200. Woo! Please remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going. You can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, 3 euros or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter or X, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to Armstrong at gmail.com. Finally let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, which will be episode 201, thank you very much for listening.